This is the Education Gadfly Show. It's a Rorschach test. All of these test scores. It could be people going vegan. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Hey there, glad to fly back in with you this week. Great to have you with us. It's been a minute. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Well, for those of you that maybe are new to Fordham or our podcast somehow don't know, Checker Finn is Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, as well as our founder, our founding president. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, Assessing the Nation's Report Card, Challenges and Choices for NAEP, sure to be a bestseller. It's going to sell millions and millions of copies. Yes. But you know what? It is going to be a great book, especially for those policy wonks out there. And we know you and love you. And it's very much on topic for today's discussion because we are going to talk about the NAEP results that came out just last week. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Checker. Long-term trend results came out last week for nine-year-olds and 13-year-olds. Start by helping us understand. What's long-term trend? How is that different from so-called main NAEP? Right. That's about a half a chapter in the forthcoming book. And it's a little confusing to most people. And uh, many people wish that either the one or the other would go away. Main NAEP, which is predominantly the instrument that is used, for example, every two years to check on reading and math scores in grades four and eight. Main NAEP periodically has to update its tests and its frameworks because uh, curriculum and pedagogy change in America. And it is believed that NAEP should update its approach to testing subjects to keep up with uh, changes in education. However, that means you can't compare over long periods of time how kids are doing, because when you change the tests, you lose the trend line. That's the phrase of art. And so there's also a long-term trend NAEP, which tests reading and math, going all the way back to the early 1970s, using essentially the same test that was in use 50 years ago. And while that does not keep up with trends in American education, it does enable us to see how today's nine-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds are doing compared to their age mates half a century ago. Okay. And what we found out was very sobering, right? Especially for 13-year-olds. We saw a statistically significant decline. I think I heard Peggy Carr say this was the first time we've had this statistically significant decline in, in the 50 years of the testing program. This was in mathematics that she was referring to, I believe. Nine-year-olds officially flat, though if you look at the scores, they do seem to be trending down, just not yet statistically significant. And just again, kind of bad news across the board, but especially bad news for the lowest achieving kids, for Black and Hispanic kids. I think everybody except for maybe the highest achieving 10%, we saw some decline. So you know, people are asking now, why is this? And this is where we pundits come in, right? Because nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure what's causing these problems because, you know, Nate tells you what the trends are, but it's really hard to figure out the why. Fair to say? Let's be clear for our listeners that there are no data right now for 17-year-olds. So the Mm -hmm. uh, properly long-term trend looks at 9-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and 17-year-olds. But because of COVID and the test timing, they were barely able to test the 9- and 13-year-olds before COVID hit, and they couldn't test the uh, 17-year-olds until this year. So we don't have 17-year-old data. 
We do have these tantalizing scores for nine-year-olds and 13-year-olds, and what you said about 13-year-olds is correct, but nine-year-olds did not go down by statistically significant amounts, and 13-year-olds did. And yes, this was the first time ever that big declines, and it wasn't just math, it was reading too mm-hmm. for 13-year-olds. So leaves us with the uh, mystery, and because no test, no test, let's be clear, explains why its results are what they are. We're all left to um, use this Rorschach test of ourselves mm-hmm. of what do we think might have caused it. And I will say, though, it does look fairly similar to what we have been seeing on the main name, right? which is that, uh, you know, we used to see just some big gains back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then they kind of hit a plateau and evened out in the early 2010s. And in more recent years, we've seen some, you know, very discouraging signs, some declines in some places. Now, I have a theory, and I will be clear, it's just a theory. It's just a hypothesis. It would be hard to test, but I think it has good evidence, some evidence at least behind it. And that is that what we are seeing is the result of the Great Recession. Now, you and most of the people I know think I'm crazy for thinking this, that uh, you know that was ancient history. Uh, why am I blaming the Great Recession? But when I say, look, you've got to pay attention to what this cohort of kids has been through really since birth, because we know when they sit down for a test, it reflects not only just what did they learn last week or last year, it reflects their entire educational experiences in the school system. It, of course, reflects what happened, what's been happening in the home, what's happening in their early years, zero to five. And this cohort of kids has had a very tough time. The 13-year-olds who sat for this test in January of 2020, you know, they were born into the Great Recession. They were in the home as babies and toddlers when the Great Recession hit. Let's recall, this was no joke. This was the worst downturn since the Great Depression, thus its name. You can imagine lots of families thrown into poverty, thrown out of work, a lot of stress in the homes, right? So much stress that we see a baby bust started you know, right at the same time, right? This was the last cohort before that baby bust started. And then these kids five years later, went into school right at the time that schools, especially high poverty schools, were slashing budgets. You know, it didn't happen right away because of the way budgeting works and because the federal government came in with a big relief bill that helped keep school districts afloat for a couple of years before a fiscal cliff. So this poor group got this double whammy. I should say triple whammy now because, you know, these kids are now in high school and are part of the COVID generation too. So isn't it possible that that's why we're seeing these declines, or at least that partly explains it, you know, just in the same way that, you know, when somebody asks a couple of years from now, boy, why did the COVID generation's NAEP scores go down? People are going to say it was because they were out of school for a year and everything else that had to do with COVID. So what's wrong with this theory? Check well, out. you're entitled to your theory, which you've expressed repeatedly in various contexts and <laughs> were expressing even before these results came out. So I think you're a little fixated on it myself, but not crazy, not crazy. (laughs) I have an alternative theory, which is just as unprovable, which is that this cohort of 13-year-olds was hitting middle school just as we took our foot off the gas on school accountability with the enactment Mm -hmm. of ESSA in 2015, Mm -hmm. and that their entire time in middle school, we were switching over to every state doing its own thing. Uh, with respect to outcomes-based accountability. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. No Child Left Behind era, which had produced the early gains, had ended. And mm-hmm. we were in the ESSA era, and these are the first kids whose results demonstrate mm-hmm. any possible impact of our switch to ESSA. And frankly, you know, the NCLB era, I would argue, you know, ended much earlier, right? Because of waivers and because of, you know, lots of 
real policy. It, it had been at least since what, probably 2007, 2008, 2009, that anybody was really being held accountable. So you could argue that these, these kids experienced the lack of accountability, you know, probably ever since kindergarten. Well, all the worse for them. That would, yeah. that would even redouble my theory. So, but uh, then the question is why have the nine-year-olds held steady? Because they have, you know, they've been living under this lack of accountability well, system one, as well. One reason is that their elementary schools were barely ever affected by accountability, uh, at least not till fourth grade, uh, because yeah. we've designed the system that uh, th- until the end of third grade, nobody even checked to see mm-hmm. whether anybody was learning anything. So yeah. nine-year-olds are in fourth grade. I think yeah. that their schools weren't much affected by accountability. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're wrong. But David, what do you think? I, I think it's awfully, uh, whew, it's warm in here. Do I have to take a side in this fight? I think I'm going to be almost affectionately neutral in this one. Well, or you can float your own idea, David. You know, So for example, uh, opponents of the Common Core, you'll be surprised to hear, are blaming Common Core for these results. Yeah, yeah. Is it Halloween yet? Because Miss Napery is on the prowl. <laughs> yeah, I would say I am not inclined to blame the Common Core. I'll go that far. I am skeptical that it had, I'm not even sure when it started, right? Mm-hmm. You could say that about some of these other things. I think I lean in your direction, Mike, to be honest. It's hard for me to imagine. Let me just say this in, in a friendly way. It could be both, right? Mm-hmm. That's the wonderful thing about living in a complex world is it could be partly because we took our foot off the gas on accountability and the Great Recession could also have had an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, my bias is towards that second hypothesis. I find it hard to believe that the Great Recession didn't have an impact. But I mean, there's things about the, the data that are hard for me to explain too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you think the recession was still ongoing by say 2012, then it seems like nine-year-olds should have seen some sort of hit. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, they, um, and it does look like they did, you know, maybe not statistically significant yet. No, I, I, right. I mean, you do have to think about all the timing of these things. But look, some people would say, well, who cares? Right. We're just talking about history at this point. Well, it matters, I think, as we now start to think about the impacts on the COVID generation. Right. I mean, think about kids who last year were in kindergarten. Okay. Now they're in first grade. Let's say low income kids in particular. You know, they spent most of last year learning remotely in kindergarten. They basically weren't in school, right? They probably lost most of a year. That's going to harm them if we go back to normal, right? It's going to harm them for their entire academic careers, probably. That means that NAEP scores three years from now when their fourth graders are going to be depressed, you know, eight years from now, or no, sorry, seven years when they're eighth graders, 11 years now when they're 12th graders. I mean, it's going to be something like the 2030s before we see the impact of COVID potentially wash through our entire system. And then we'll see it in terms of college going and college completion and on and on and on. I mean, that's the kind of scar that something like this can leave us with. And it's why we need to be thinking about doing everything we can to not go back to business as usual, right? To help kids, especially when they're young and when they tend to learn the most, make as much progress as possible to change the trajectory. You know, but but it's not going to be like five years from now, we're going to be wondering what happened to these kids. We're going to know what happened to these kids and it's going to be COVID. But we, now we've got to try to change those outcomes. Well, I, I certainly agree with that and hope that we're able to uh, steal ourselves to do it, not just go back to business as usual. Incidentally, I believe NAEP has scheduled a special administration of nine-year-old long-term trend uh, for this coming spring. 
so that we will have some additional data earlier than we might otherwise have on the COVID impact on kids in, in that age group. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, that's right. And that will uh, probably give us some very sobering, sobering news, uh, though, you know, I feel like it'll be a, well, it'll be a fresh look because a lot of the data we've seen so far, including from a sophisticated study in Ohio, is really looking at learning rates, student level growth, right? Saying that, well, we know that last year kids learned a lot less than they normally would. But now we're going to say, well, so what does that actually mean for these one-time snapshot achievement rates as we go on, right? Yeah. You know, Mike, and here's the thing though, right? I mean, as I'm thinking ahead to this, I'm trying to imagine this conversation five years from now, right? And and it's as I'm sure it'll be completely different from what I think it will be because that's the one thing that's always certain. But I mean, yeah, we're definitely going to see the scars of current problems. But I mean, we've also had a bizarre, you know, just truly bizarre economic downturn, right? Mm -hmm. That I think Mm -hmm. economists would call just, pretty much unprecedented. You all probably saw that crazy spike in unemployment, right? That was just utterly off the charts yep. and enough to terrify any policymaker. I mean, we're still going to be having conversations about, you know, whether it was the kids were out of school or whether their parents were out of jobs or there was a spike in crime. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we're still going to be struggling yeah. to disaggregate COVID five years from now too. I mean, even if we accept Mike's hypothesis of the recession, right? There's still this question of, was it the direct, you know, results of the recession or was it the spending hits? And that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm very skeptical that we can, we can disentangle. Well, and and in this case, look, I mean, we, we did not see child poverty drop because of all the federal aid that came in, right? Both during the initial downturn and, and after we've got this expanded child tax credit that's, you know, cutting poverty and that the Democrats might extend, you know, so, and, and then you've got this huge amount of federal funding going into the schools. So they're not experiencing any kind of downturn and much the, the opposite. There will be eventually a fiscal cliff though. And so then we'll see what happens on that side of it. Right. So you're right. It's all these different factors together. And I think that's the main point I want to make is that it's complicated and it's always tempting to put ourselves at the middle of the story, you know, and checker. Look, I used to want to believe that when we saw those big gains in the late nineties and early two thousands, that it was what we were doing. It was accountability. You know, policymakers were turning those knobs on accountability and we were seeing the test scores go way up. In fact, I think that's what Al Gore claimed in 2000 when some NAEP scores came out as he was in the middle of a presidential election. But I think as I've gone back to that era and looked at it, I think it has at least as much to do with the fact that child poverty dropped dramatically in the 1990s. We had a booming economy, welfare reform, all this other stuff. So it's complicated. It's probably multiple factors and that we need to expect that to be the case going forward as well. I just want to repeat that it's a Rorschach test, all of these test scores. It could be climate change. It could be the invention of the Tesla. It could be people going vegan. You just named several things that I don't think it could be. I'm going to go out on a limb. (laughs) All right. We will leave it there. Thanks so much, guys. Really great conversation. Checker, always a pleasure having you join us. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We were just chatting beforehand about how both of us are heading off on business trips. It's a big deal. It looks like, you know, events and meetings are slowly coming back. Yeah, I'm excited heading to the Pi Network Summit. This is the umbrella group for all the education reform groups from around the country. And it's going to be a big one. I think something like almost 300 people. And we all have to 
prove that we're vaccinated and get a test ahead of time. Wow. Okay. You're going to be seeing some policymakers in Missouri. Headed to Missouri, a legislator's retreat hosted by the Hunt Institute. So yeah, all right. excited about that. It's coming back. Here's hoping that it stays this way and that we, we're hoping we're on the downside of the last wave of this horrible pandemic. We are, we are. All right. Well, tell us what you got for this week. All right. We got a new study in the Economics of Education Review, which is a really fancy journal. It's got a bunch of great research in it. It examines whether stricter high school math requirements raise college STEM attainment. So the author, it's a nice sort of background section where the author talks about the change in math requirements after a nation at risk and basically says in the years following that, 40 states increased or imposed for the first time a required number of years of math courses required for graduation. Seems like hard to believe, but at one time, many states did not have that. In most cases, they went from no or one requirement to three years of math to graduate in those years after a nation at risk. Specifically, data show that the graduating class of 2009 earned 3.9 math credits on average compared to 2.6 credits in the cohorts that graduated in the early 80s. So, With all that in mind, the study looks at high school math curriculum requirements for cohorts of students who graduated from 1980 to 2008 who had at least a bachelor's degree. They collect data on high school math requirements from IES and the Education Commission of the States, and they glean degree and college major data from the American Community Survey years 2009 to 2015. They use a difference in different strategy where they leverage cross-state variation in the timing of these math reforms, basically assumes that absent these reforms, the trends in STEM degree completion rates would largely be the same across states. But yet there's a long section on, okay, we also need to mitigate the problem that other state-level characteristics might have changed over the years and confound their results. So they also account for a ton of other variables including state expenditures on K-12, implementation of exit exams, adoption of state accountability reforms, the rising cost of college, median household income, unemployment rates in the year of high school graduation, and a lot of other things. So I'll leave it to our readers if they want to get in the nuts and bolts of everything that they were able to control for. The results suggest that the implementation of stricter high school math curriculum requirements significantly increase the proportion of college students earning a bachelor's degree in STEM fields. The share of STEM graduates increased by about 0.65 percentage points after states raised their high school math curriculum requirements. That translates into about a 3.5% increase from the base level. And then they disaggregate by gender, and they find that this increase in STEM degree completion rates following these math reforms was insignificant statistically for males, but it translated to a nearly 7% increase in female college STEM attainment, which is obviously notable given their underrepresentation and all the attention we've tried to pay to getting females interested in STEM. They posit that perhaps the reforms helped to alter gender stereotypes, or maybe the reform had less ability to affect males with prior strong math performance who might already have met the requirements, or they were going to pursue a STEM degree anyway, but it's hard to tell exactly what happened with the males. But anyway, good news on the female front. 
Then finally, they look at how the math reforms affect degree completion rates across various STEM fields. So they find that the proportion of math majors and science majors increased by approximately 10% and 6% respectively after these math graduation requirements were put in place. Little to no impact in computer technology and information sciences or engineering. So it was mainly the impact, again, in math and science, not computer technology or engineering. Last, they find that high school graduation, college attendance, and overall degree completion are largely unaffected by these reforms. And they close with saying, you know what, it appears that what happened was these stricter requirements in the mathematics courses shifted some students away from the non-STEM fields into the STEM fields. So it was pretty good news from where I sit. Okay. Well, you know, I like that this podcast has had a nice thematic connection to it because earlier <laughs> we also talked about history in a way. We were talking about more recent history, what explains the decline in NAEP scores recently. And I was making my case that it was the Great Recession. Recession, yeah. But uh, so this we go back even further in history to look at the nation at risk era. It's really interesting. And yes, it is good news that we saw that this helped get more young women into math and science fields. So that's good. I guess the question would be, you know, was it worth it? I mean, those gains were pretty modest, I'd say. And it took having what millions of kids take courses that they otherwise wouldn't have taken, right? I mean, I don't know what that necessarily cost more money, but it might have, I don't know, caused a lot of kids to be annoyed and to maybe uh, suffer through courses they didn't really want to take. There are all, all a host of other important outcomes other than getting into STEM, yeah. taking higher math classes, though. I mean, that would be my response to you. Yeah. And, you know, why wasn't it more? I mean, don't we know from that era that, you know, that some of this was about playing games, that people would relabel their courses. They'd, right. You know, That's right. They'd spread things out. They'd say, okay, you're going to make us uh, give every kid three years of math. We'll just take the two years and we'll spread it out. Right. Or exactly, you know, take take three years to, to get through Algebra 1, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I guess what I, I guess where I'm getting to is, is just, look, we know in America, like most kids will go to college. Half of those kids will drop out. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, are we really serving those kids best by pushing them on college, 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 especially the sort of traditional college track. Mm-hmm. And that was the focus of that era. You know, it was that assumption. We're going to make everybody take more of a college prep kind of track. And I feel like the pendulum has swung back again a little bit saying maybe, maybe those kids, we could have spent their time if they were doing instead, say high quality career tech when they were in junior and senior year, instead of sitting through another regular math class that they maybe weren't right. benefiting but I mean, from. Gosh, this was algebra one, algebra two, and geometry. You know, I, yeah. I don't know. This is yeah. not like it's super high level math. You know, we were yeah. starting when, when states weren't even requiring no math to graduate. I mean, that's yeah. that's where we were coming out of with a nation at risk. All right. All right. <laughs> now that, all right. That's true. That's true. I, I hear you. I mean, I, I had the stat in here somewhere. It was something like 40 states, you know, yeah. actually started requiring something. Well, and I look, I, I like some of the reforms that came later where they had, say, I'm thinking, I think maybe in Indiana or other places where they'd have an honors diploma, let's say, if you took a certain mm-hmm. course sequence and did well on them. You know, of course, now there's been a big focus on AP classes or dual enrollment classes. So that has continued. I just want to make sure that we have an honest conversation that says- right. Not everybody needs to go to a traditional four-year college. Not everybody's going to go. Not everybody's going to succeed there. They're just not, mm-hmm. right? And right. and so, 
you know, there's some group of kids who definitely are, and we want to make sure they're well-prepared and we want that group to be as inclusive as possible. There's another group of kids who are relatively high achieving or, you know, not terribly low achieving, who might be interested more in career and technical kinds of things, a more applied focus. Maybe they want to go for two years in college to get some more technical. We should get them started on that, you know, right, and then we right. should be honest about what do we do with these kids who come into ninth grade barely able to read and do math. And, you know, what is the right way for them to spend their time? Right. And I think that is that group of kids that we just, no one's willing to have an honest conversation. Right. And there've been a lot of organizations doing this, but really trying to figure out what you need for various occupations, not even yeah. just a field of occupations, but yeah. what do you need, you know, to be president of a think tank, Mike? I mean, you know, <laughs> what do you need to be a research director? I mean, so mm-hmm. I think that just the more that we can pinpoint the exact skills and strategies that we need for different occupations or groups of occupations is really helpful. You know, we have work where we've surveyed people in all these fields and asked them, you know, what do you do on a daily basis? What kind of math do you need to know? And that's hugely helpful information. I think it inspires that realism that you're talking about. Yep. All right. Well, hey, well said. And again, I don't want to diminish. This was important work back in the days, way back. Yes. And I'm glad that we made some progress on some important outcomes. Yes. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at Fordham Institute. Dot org.